Well, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you all. Uh, you know, we've had an interesting week this week with our uh, celebrating our independence, right? Uh, Fourth of July came and went, and uh, 242 years now of independence. And uh, so we just thank God uh, for our independence and the freedoms uh, that we enjoy. Uh, we also thank God because the, uh, the uh, boys in Thailand are being rescued. Uh, even as we speak, uh, four boys have, have uh, made it out of the cave, and I expect that the rest of them are going to be, uh, over the next 24 hours, all of them, uh, barring anything uh, unforeseen, will, will get out. And so we, we praise God for that. So uh, before we get into our uh, message today, we just want to go to the Lord uh, in prayer. Lord God, uh, we do thank you. You have been so gracious to us, uh, to bless us, uh, United States of America, for these uh, 200 plus years, Lord. And uh, the freedoms that we enjoy here are uh, unknown in many places throughout the world. And so we're very thankful, Lord, for, for big things like that. And, and we're thankful that uh, these boys in, in Thailand look like they're going to get out of that cave. And what a scary experience for them and for their parents uh, as they've been down there for close to a week, I think. And we're just thankful that uh, you have engineered a way, Lord. Uh, we're, we're very grateful, Lord. And as we come to your word today, Lord, uh, Lord, just let the Holy Spirit speak. Uh, my voice, but the Holy Spirit's words, Lord, and may the Holy Spirit do his work as we, as we uh, speak about Peter and Cornelius today, Lord. Uh, may the word touch us in some new way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be continuing our study in Acts today, and uh, we'll be uh, talking about the story of Peter and Cornelius. And this is a long story. It stretches all the way through chapter 10 and halfway uh, through chapter 11. Uh, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, when he was in college in England, uh, he had heard the gospel, and he was very moved and touched by the gospel, and he thought, you know, maybe I'll, I'll think about becoming a Christian, because I think that uh, Christianity offers a solution uh, to the problem we have in India with our caste system, where we have different classes of people, and those classes of people uh, can never co-mingle. Uh, and so he was thinking about that, and he decided, you know, I'm going to go to a Christian church, and I'm going to... Uh, meet the pastor, and I'm going to ask him about the Christian doctrines of salvation, and I'm going to see if perhaps I can become a Christian. Well, he showed up to church on uh, one Sunday morning, intending to have that conversation with the pastor, uh, but when he got to the church, uh, the ushers there refused to seat him. They said, maybe you would be more comfortable uh, worshiping with people more like yourself. And what a tragedy, right, uh, that, that the leader of the Hindu world was denied access uh, to that church. And can you imagine uh, what might have happened uh, if Gandhi had been shown the love of Christ uh, that morning, right? Uh, what, what would have happened if Gandhi actually decided to become a Christian? And the one billion Hindus in the world today followed Gandhi into Christianity. Can you imagine how different the world might look uh, but for uh, the failure of a few ushers in church that morning to offer Gandhi the love of Christ. Who knows uh, how the world might have been changed. They may have forgotten that the love of Christ is offered to all people, all people, uh, regardless of how we look and how we're dressed. Uh, the gospel is for everyone. You know, God told Abraham in, in uh, Genesis chapter 12, he said, I will bless you and through you, I will bless all the nations. And so what did that mean if it didn't mean everybody? Uh, as, the, uh, as the Israelite history continued, right, past 
uh, Abraham 2,000 years up till New Testament days, what, what would those words have meant if they didn't mean uh, the Gentiles also when God said all? Now, in their defense, uh, God had set up a lot of laws that separated the Jews from the Gentiles, right? He told them, uh, you be circumcised, you don't eat these foods, you don't practice like the Gentiles practice. So uh, you can understand why Peter would be surprised that he would want to, the, the Gentiles to hear as well. But God was about to break down uh, those walls too. So let's see how God made it happen. First, we will look at Cornelius's uh, vision. And we see that in verses 1 to 8 that George read for us. So uh, Cornelius was a Roman, right? And so he comes out of Roman society. That's pagan society. You have uh, Jupiter is the god of uh, thunder, and he's the god of the sky, and, and he's the king of all gods, and Mars is the god of war, and Venus is the goddess of love, and, and on and on it went. But, but somehow, Cornelius, uh, during his time at Caesarea, uh, he had contact with the Jews, and somehow he must have become convinced that the god of the Jews was the one true god. And so he prayed to this god, and he worshipped this god, and he gave alms to the Jews uh, as a result of his faith in God. Uh, and so he was clearly a devout man. He was a seeker, uh, you might say. Uh, and even though Cornelius couldn't offer sacrifices in the temple, he's a Gentile after all, right? So he can't enter the temple. Uh, even though he couldn't offer sacrifices in the temple, his prayers and his almsgiving rose up as a memorial uh, to God. And so uh, almost like the smoke of a sacrifice would, God uh, heard Cornelius' prayers. He saw uh, Cornelius' almsgiving uh, and, and God hears and God sees your prayers and, and what you do as a result of your Christian faith as well. He's got his eyes on us and he knows what's going on here. And so uh, God sends Cornelius this vision and, and he says to Cornelius, send down to Joppa for a man named Peter. Uh, and he's going to find Peter right where we left him last week, right at this house of Simon the Tanner, which is why uh, Luke kind of told that story where he told it last week. So uh, Cornelius did. He went and sent two men down to reach Peter. And so uh, I want us to see two things from this little uh, eight-verse uh, passage here. And the first thing is that God is always going to reach somebody, a true seeker, with the gospel. You remember a couple weeks ago when the Ethiopian eunuch was riding along in his chariot, reading the scroll of Isaiah, had just didn't understand what it was that he was reading. But God, in his providence, put Philip in his path, explained the gospel to uh, this Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch is saved, uh, and he's baptized. And so here we have Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a devout man who prays to God and gives alms, puts his faith in God into action by the giving of alms. And what does God do? Uh, he sends Peter. Now, we've all heard the question, uh, what about people who are seeking after God and yet haven't heard the gospel? And that is a very serious question. It should spark love and compassion and concern in our hearts for people uh, who haven't heard the gospel. But I believe that God puts it uh, on our hearts first. He draws us by the power of his Holy Spirit uh, into wanting a relationship with him. And then uh, when we respond properly to that prompting from the Holy Spirit, then God sends someone to preach the gospel to that person. And we see it with uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, and we see it here uh, with this uh, Roman centurion, Cornelius. Now, 
that does not relieve us of our responsibility to preach the gospel, right? We are not permitted to say, well, if God intends for them to hear the gospel, somebody's going to preach it to them, so I don't have to do anything. That's, that's not how God works. God intends to use us just like he used Philip and just like he used Peter uh, to preach this gospel message. We don't get to say, if God is going to reach them anyway, let him use somebody else. Doing God's work is a privilege. It's not something that we're looking to avoid, right? So we should always be looking to do what God has for us. So don't be afraid to be God's messenger if he has put you in a position to be that messenger. So God will always reach a true seeker with the gospel. And secondly, being devout is not enough. When you look at Cornelius, this is obviously a good man, right? I mean, he's doing good things he's do, according to the economy of God. He, he's among the best people because not many people in the Bible are portrayed in such a positive light uh, as Cornelius is. Uh, but as good as he may have been, he is still a sinner in need of a savior. And what this shows us is that it, it doesn't depend on you and your good works or anything you may have done. It's not your desire to be godly. You have to be born again. That's the only way into the kingdom. So self-reliance, self-sufficiency, pride in the things that you may have done or accomplished, uh, that will never get you into heaven. The Pharisees had all of those things, but they lacked salvation uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it takes humility to recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, that no matter what you have done, it's not enough. You need to be born again. You have to have the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so these things that Cornelius had, his desire to pray to God and give alms, showed that he had a heart that was ready to receive God. But being devout, his devoutness was not enough. He still needed to receive Jesus. And that's why uh, Cornelius was excited when he was told, send down to Joppa for this man named Peter, and, and he'll come and he'll bring you a message. So as Cornelius' men are approaching the gate of Simon the Tanner, uh, God sends Peter a vision of his own, which we'll see uh, in the next episode. So Peter, Peter has a vision of his own, and he goes up onto the rooftop to, to pray. And that may seem odd to us. We generally don't crawl onto our roofs uh, to pray anymore. But in uh, first century Israel, they made houses like this, flat roofs, that would have a, an exterior staircase and you could walk out up onto that roof and you could pray. And Simon the Tanner's house must have had that exterior staircase and he's up on the roof praying uh, when God sent him a vision. Peter became hungry and God sent him a vision and Peter saw what looked like uh, a sheet, four corners of a sheet uh, carrying all kinds of uh, four-legged creatures and insects and birds, uh, which according to Leviticus 11, where the food laws are found, were all unclean uh, for Peter to eat. And the voice says to Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter was horrified. He's like, by no means will I eat these things. I've never eaten anything unclean uh, in my entire life. Uh, if you've ever watched some of those food shows, right, where the host goes into other cultures and they're like serving up, you know, fried scorpions or, you know, beetle stew or something like that, you understand uh, what Peter was feeling at that moment. He's like, gross, there is no way I'm eating that stuff. Uh, and then the voice says, well, what God has cleansed no longer consider to be unholy. Isn't that amazing? After 2,000 years of these food laws, uh, what does it say? What God has cleansed, past tense. How has God cleansed these foods? He's cleansed them by the blood of Jesus. Because of the blood of Jesus, 
these food laws are no longer necessary. What's necessary now is to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So these foods have been cleansed, and now they can be eaten. You might remember from Mark, uh, chapter 7, uh, Mark says uh, with this episode of, of uh, Jesus uh, and the foods, he says, it's not what goes into a man that makes him holy, but what comes out of a mouth, out of his mouth, uh, that shows the condition of his heart. And Mark says at that point, by this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And so here we are, uh, Peter hearing this same message. But uh, there was a lot in that that Peter didn't understand yet, right? Uh, this is new to Peter. Uh, we have to remember that uh, the Jews were a very small minority. We read the Bible, and it's written from the Jewish perspective, so we think, you know, the Jews dominated the culture, but they did not. They were a very small minority, and the food laws protected the Jews from becoming assimilated into the other people groups. It's what kept them separate. And so they wouldn't eat like the Gentiles. They wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. They kept themselves separate. And there were other laws that separated Jews from Gentiles, from circumcision to the way they dressed. Uh, but the food laws were an hourly reminder. You know, every time you eat, you are, that, that separates you from who the Gentiles are and what they do. So take away the food laws and Judaism would not survive. They would just become assimilated into the culture. And, and that's why Peter was horrified. And like a, a nightmare that you can't wake up from, Peter saw this whole sequence happen the first time and then two more times after that before this sheet was taken up again into the sky. And so you can imagine Peter thinking, well, if I have to watch this sequence three times, uh, maybe God is trying to teach me something here. And so you can imagine Peter like, coming out of this trance and trying to shake the cobwebs out of his head, right? Trying to figure out what it is that God wants him to learn here. And while he's reflecting on this vision, he doesn't have a whole lot of time to think about it. Uh, Cornelius's men, they show up at the gate of Simon the Tanner. And, and the spirit says to Peter, don't be afraid. Go with these men because I have sent them. Uh, so Peter goes down and he sees these men and he would know immediately that they were Gentiles because of the way they were dressed but then, by what they say, they would leave no doubt. They work for this man named Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. He's a devout man. He prays. He gives alms to the Jews. He's well spoken of by the Jews. And so all this would make Peter very well disposed toward Cornelius. But it's the next thing that they say that gets Peter to understand that this is a divine encounter that God wants him to have. They told Peter that a holy angel told Cornelius to send for Peter. And, and Peter now understood that, that he had a vision, but Cornelius had also had a vision too. And so God is orchestrating this meeting. He's orchestrating the entire thing. He still doesn't understand his vision. He still doesn't understand why uh, he would be sent to speak to a Gentile, uh, but he knows that God is at work here. And so Peter invited them to stay in with them overnight. And that is of course significant because he's inviting now Gentiles under his roof. And Peter was still hungry, remember? He hasn't eaten yet, and so he had a meal with these guys, at least one, probably a second evening meal, and probably a morning meal before they headed back to uh, Caesarea. And so we've seen that Peter is living in the house of Simon the Tanner, who is unclean, and now he's eating with Gentiles. And so you can see uh, these walls of separation between Gentile and Jew being broken down uh, as Peter begins to dispense with some of these uh, rigid rituals that the Jews had always engaged in. 
So here's a principle from this particular section, and that is that God is in complete control of every situation. You know, it would have been no problem for God to tell the angel, angel, you go and preach the gospel to Cornelius. But he did not do that, right? He told, he wanted Peter to preach the gospel to Cornelius. Why? Because there's this massive chasm between Jew and Gentile. And so to bridge the gap, he wants Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he breaks into, the, into Cornelius' thoughts. Then he breaks into Peter's thoughts. He brings them together uh, to achieve his purposes. And that should give us hope. Because God is in control of our circumstances too. Whatever we may be going through at the moment, uh, do we not think that God is sovereign enough to handle that particular situation? And he's using whatever it is that you're going through for some reason uh, at the moment. And when uh, he's achieved his purposes, then whatever it is that you're going through is going to pass. Uh, God is in control of all uh, these situations. So uh, now we're going to have to read some of the scripture. I only had George read the first 23 verses. It was way too long a passage to have him sit up there and read the entire thing. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll read now, starting with Peter at Cornelius's house, and we'll read verses 23 to 29. Uh, and on the next day, he got up and went with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with them, he entered and found many people assembled, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him, and yet God has shown me that I could, should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask you for what reason you have sent me. So uh, the next day, Peter gets up and, and he heads out with uh, the Cornelius' entourage uh, back to uh, Caesarea. When we get to the next chapter, chapter 11, verse 12, we're told that uh, six uncircumcised believers went with Peter. So it's Peter, these six, or these six believing uh, who are circumcised, and the three who came to get Peter. So that's a total of 10 going back to Caesarea now. And they're taking this walk on the following day they arrived at Cornelius' home. So they've taken this walk from Joppa right here about 31 miles up the coast of Caesarea. It's, it's a little bit more than one day's walk, so uh, they took two days to get there. And I just wonder about uh, the conversations that these guys must have had on the way uh, as they're trying to figure out what in the world God is up to, what's going on here. Uh, I can imagine the looks that they got from the other Jews that they might have passed on their way as, as Peter and his six are traveling with this Roman entourage. They must have thought that either Peter was insane or that he was under arrest because there's no way that you would travel uh, 31 miles uh, unless one of those two things was true. Uh, so Peter is on his way uh, to Cornelius' house. And in the meantime, Cornelius is so eager that he is gathering his own friends and family uh, to come hear what Peter has to say. And so Peter enters the house, which he would never do without the direction of the Holy Spirit because it was unclean for him to enter and associate with them. And when he gets in the house, Cornelius could have claimed rank over Peter, right? I mean, after all, he's a Roman centurion and the Jews are subject to the Romans. So Peter is less than Cornelius. 
Uh, but instead, Cornelius doesn't claim rank. He gets on his knees before Peter and worships Peter almost like he's a god. Uh, that's an incredible act of humility. Uh, also shows that he doesn't quite know his theology quite right yet, but he'll get there, right? Uh, in the meantime, uh, Peter also responds with humility, and he says, you stand up. I, too, uh, am just a man. And after telling Cornelius to, uh, to get up, uh, Peter reminded them of what they already knew. Uh, it's not lawful for me to enter this house or to associate with you or a foreigner. Uh, and, and so what we see here is that these Jews had deep-rooted biases and hatred toward the Gentiles for several reasons. One, because they're unclean according to God. Uh, secondly, uh, they are, are uh, subjecting the, the Jews to themselves. They're, they're under, the Jews are under Roman subjection. And of course, they hated that. And don't forget that it's these very Romans who crucified Jesus not that long ago. So there's a lot of bitterness and anger that's going on between the Jews and the Gentiles, especially the Jews who have accepted Jesus as their Savior. But Peter now shows that he understood the meaning of his vision, right? He, said, he, he gets it. This vision is about food, uh, yes, but it's about a lot more than food. It's about people, too. He realizes that, that these Gentiles are not unclean or unholy. They are sinners in need of a Savior, just like Peter was. And I think by this point in time, Peter has the idea of why uh, God has sent him to this place. Uh, but still, Peter asked them to state uh, his business. Why have you sent for me, Cornelius? And Cornelius uh, then in verses 30 to 32 recounts the vision that he has had. And in verse 33 says, we are all present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And I can just imagine uh, Peter's jaw kind of hitting the floor like those cartoon characters that you see, right? The jaw drops all the way to the floor and the tongue rolls out. And, and he's thinking, does God really, really want me to preach the gospel to these Gentiles? You know, we don't get uh, in the text any uh, idea of the, the length of time that passed between Cornelius's invitation to speak and uh, Peter actually starting to speak. But I bet it took a good minute or two for Peter to collect his thoughts and think about what he was going to say to these Gentile believers. And so what I want you to see, though, what Peter says is he gives them the gospel. And the gospel is the gospel is the gospel. The gospel is always the gospel. And so when you're called on to preach, you just preach the gospel. And that's what Peter did here. No preacher ever had a more attentive audience than Cornelius's men as they waited for Peter to speak. Uh, so let's see what Peter says in this next uh, passage. Verse 34, uh, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, 
but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So before he even preached the gospel, Peter vocalized his new understanding about God and his new understanding of God's plan. God shows no partiality in every nation, in every nation. The man who fears and does right is welcome to him. Now, this is not salvation by works. The man who fears God is the man who believes in God. And the man who believes in God then does what is right. So Cornelius believed in God, he prayed to God, and then he gave uh, alms to the Jews. And that's why Cornelius is, is uh, getting this righteousness from God. And Peter thought that the gospel was only for the Jews. But then he found out that, well, the Samaritans are half Jews, even though we hate them. Uh, they're still partially Jews, so I guess they get the gospel too. But now the Gentiles are going to get the, the gospel. The Gentiles are going to get the gospel. That would have been absolutely mind-blowing to Peter. He would never have thought that. And so uh, one of my favorite commentators, John Stott, said the principal subject of this chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius as it is the conversion of Peter. And I think that's largely true because Peter was being changed. When Peter understood God's desire to reach the Gentiles, he preached the entire gospel to them. And it's similar to Peter's prior speeches in Acts, so we won't go into it in painstaking detail, but we see all the same elements. Uh, Peter talked about Jesus' birth. He talked about Jesus' ministry. He talked about Jesus' death, his resurrection, how he arose and how he ate uh, and drank with the apostles whom he appointed to be with him, and the commission that these apostles received to go out and preach the good news to everyone and to teach the message that everyone who believes will receive forgiveness of sins. And apparently, Cornelius and the people with him had heard enough to uh, believe the gospel because Peter never even finished this sermon before the Holy Spirit began to fall on uh, them. So let's read verses uh, 44 to 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, that's the Jews who came with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Peter had seen belief followed by or accompanied by uh, the Holy Spirit before, right? He saw that at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and 120 Jews received the Holy Spirit. But now he's seeing a Gentile Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming down on these uh, folks who believe. And, and the six circumcised believers are stunned because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on Gentiles too. And the proof that they saw was that these guys started speaking in tongues just like they did. And so Peter knew that it was proper and appropriate to, to baptize uh, these people in water as well. And so that's what he does. And so 
what we see here is the regular order of belief uh, in the New Testament, where we have belief accompanied by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, followed by water baptism. Now, let's say a word about the gospel here and what it does. The gospel bridges the gap between any two people. No matter the gap between you and someone else, the gospel bridges that gap. And the gospel bridges the gap between any two people groups. Jews and Gentiles could not be further apart. There could not be a greater chasm. And yet, this is what Paul spoke about in Ephesians 2 when he said that Jesus uh, made the two, Jew and Gentile, one. He reconciled the two into one body in Christ. And so when we think about the gospel, the reconciliation that the gospel can bring through belief in Jesus Christ truly is a miracle. All of the things that divide us, each and everything that divides us, is of no importance or significance whatsoever when compared to the one thing that unites us, and that is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the great uniter, and everything else that divides should simply fall away because we're united by the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and so when these guys realized that, that they were all part of one body, I, I just would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for some of those conversations that happened when Peter agreed to stay with them for a couple of days. Uh, Peter teaching them, uh, telling stories about what it was like to be with Jesus during his earthly ministry and even after his resurrection, what amazing stories he had to tell. And, and beyond that, what it means to be brothers in Christ, even though we come from different cultures uh, and backgrounds. And so here's the principle from this section, and that is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all sinners. We all need Jesus. Every one of us needs Jesus. And Cornelius understood that Jesus died for his sins and rose from the dead so that he could have eternal life. And so it doesn't matter who you are, where you live, how rich you are, how poor you are, what good you may have done in your life. You need Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life. <clears throat> and no one comes to the Father except through him. Well, that's the good news for Cornelius and the Gentiles. But some of the Jews didn't necessarily think that this was the best news that they had ever heard. And so let's see how some of these Jews react in chapter 11 as Peter makes his way back to Jerusalem. Uh, so here's the accusation from the Jews. It's interesting that the news got back to uh, Jerusalem before Peter got back to Jerusalem, right? They, they were all ready for Peter. They had heard the news that the Gentiles had received uh, the gospel. And so the accusation, verses 1 through 3, now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Isn't it interesting that it's not you preach the gospel to them, it's that you ate with them, right? I mean, and that just goes to show the cultural divide between Jews and Gentiles. It, it's one thing to tell them the gospel, but you're not even allowed to eat with these guys. And so that was really a cultural faux pas, what Peter did. And so if you guys remember uh, the show I Love Lucy, uh, Ricky always used to say to Lucy, uh, Lucy, you've got some splaining to do, right? You remember that? Well, when Peter got back to Jerusalem, he had some splaining to do. And so, well, what does Peter do? He doesn't get all defensive. He just simply says the facts. He tells them what happened. He answered with the story of his vision, the, uh, the story of Cornelius' vision and what he had seen and how God poured the Holy Spirit 
out on them. It's not about anything that Peter did. It's about what God did. And that's what a testimony is, talking about what God has done in your life, what he did before you were saved, how you were saved, and then what you're like now since you have been saved. And so uh, God gave the Gentiles the Holy Spirit, and he gave proof that they had received the Holy Spirit by giving them this gift of tongues. Uh, and, And so the Jews who saw it were like, well, they got it just like we got it. And so it's not necessary to speak in tongues as proof that you were saved, but this was a sign given to Peter and the Gentiles so that they would know that the Holy Spirit had come on them too, uh, just like he had for the Jews. And so after uh, completing his story in verses 4 to 15, here's how Peter wraps it up in verses 16 and 17. He says, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And so this is Peter's challenge to the Jews, but there's no way the Jews could have an answer to this challenge. Uh, You would kind of expect them to be resentful, right? Because they were geared up for Peter when he got to them. Uh, They were ready to have this fight. Uh, But yet, it's interesting because... Uh, they, they could have been resentful. You, you could expect that they would not want to share their blessings with the Gentiles. But then, uh, to their credit, in verse 18, this is how they respond. When they heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. That is no insignificant statement. I mean, when those guys realize this, their entire worldview is turned upside down. Uh, And that is going to be uh, as big a game changer as there ever was in the history uh, of the church. And so uh, what we see here is that the Jews did not grumble against God. They worshiped God. Uh, There would certainly be trouble in the future as certain Jews simply would not accept fellowship with Gentiles. And then the ones who would had to figure out, well, is it necessary for these Gentiles to become Jews first by circumcision and then become Christians? Or can they just jump right from Gentileness to Christians? Uh, They'll work out those problems uh, as they move along through Acts chapter 15 and then through Paul's missionary journeys. But for now, uh, what happened at Caesarea laid the groundwork for the, for the growing church uh, that would include Gentiles, and, and uh, it laid the groundwork for Paul's missionary journeys where he's going to go, starting in Acts chapter 13, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles all around uh, that region. And so the church started in Jerusalem. It expanded to the north into uh, Samaria, to the south in Ethiopia, uh, to the north in Caesarea. And next week, we're going to see it even leave Israel uh, in Antioch, uh, outside of Israel. And Antioch is going to become Christianity's new hub. But let's think about a few things that we can learn uh, from this chapter uh, as we read about Peter and Cornelius in this amazing conversion. The first thing I want us to see is that Christianity is exclusive and it's also inclusive. It's exclusive because you have to hold a particular belief to get in. You have to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you can have everlasting life. So that's its exclusivity. But it's inclusive because everyone, and I mean everyone, is invited in to uh, this particular Uh, gospel message. And so rich, poor, black, white, Democrat, Republican, uh, slave, uh, slave free, uh, Jew, Gentile, male, female, it doesn't matter. Everyone is invited in. 
There is no favoritism with God. And so uh, we should never think that we are better than anybody else because we've all been extended the same visitation. Christ died for each and every one of us. And so he must think each and every one of us to be infinitely valuable. And so that's why he died for all of us. And that's why none of us is better than anyone else. And that's why everyone is invited in. So preach the gospel to all and never think that anyone is beyond God's reach. Secondly, Christianity is supported by facts, but to believe them, we need grace. Peter told Cornelius the facts that he and the other apostles had witnessed. It's historical. Uh, It's reasonable. It makes sense. Cornelius believed, but not all who Peter preached the gospel message to believed, right? Certainly the Sanhedrin didn't believe a word that Peter had to say. First, they uh, whipped him, they imprisoned him, and so they, they never believed it. So God has to be the one who gives the grace so that we can believe. And I just praise God that he didn't limit his grace to the Jews, because where would we be, right? We had to have grace extended to us so that we could believe. And Jesus said, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them in too. And by his grace, that's us. Uh, It's supported by facts, and God gives us the grace so that we can believe. And finally, when you witness, two people are changed. Uh, Cornelius was changed, but Peter was changed also. The best reason for preaching the gospel is that uh, unsaved people can be saved and they can have eternity with Jesus. But a wonderful byproduct is that we can be changed as well. Uh, Peter would never be the same after Cornelius was a believer, right? Uh, Peter himself was becoming a new creation, just like 2 Corinthians says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Peter understood what Jesus meant when he told them that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. When you go to the remotest parts of the earth, you're not going to find Jews there. You're going to find Gentiles there. And so they all uh, were given a commission to go preach the gospel to these people. And Peter would spend the rest of his life changing people with the gospel and being changed by the people he met. And when we witness, the same thing happens to us. And God wants us to go out and preach the gospel and save other people, but he uses those experiences that we have in preaching the gospel so that we can be changed and be made more Christ-like ourselves. And and it's just a wonderful thing that God allows us to be changed, uh, becoming more Christ-like as we do the work that he's given us to do. So I pray that we will go out and do it. Let's ask the Lord to bless our message. Lord God, what an amazing thing that you did when you broke down these walls that existed between Jew and Gentile for hundreds, even thousands of years, Lord, and you brought the Gentiles into your church. And for 2,000 years since, Lord, you have been bringing Gentiles into your church. And Lord, as we continue to go from here, most of the people that we will come into contact with are Gentiles. And so, uh, Lord, you say that that, uh, you're just going to continue uh, waiting, uh, waiting for the, to allow uh, the full number of Jews to come in until all the Gentiles have come in. So help us, Lord, to go out and preach this gospel to the Gentiles so that the full number will come in. Lord, we just eagerly look forward to the work that you have for us to do. We ask that you would bless it, Lord. We ask that uh, as we come into contact with other people that we, had, we would have the courage to preach it. And Lord, we pray that you would give people the grace so that they might believe. We ask these things in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.